Hey, it's Beth here. Episode 356. I I was thinking about the Algonquin and how witty those people were. And how, how I wish somebody was witty now. Just something really clever that somebody could say. And so I was looking into the history of this 10-year lunch that these people had at the Algonquin. And it started according to Helen Hayes and everyone else who was there. In no on November 11th, 1918, it was the end of the war and they were all running around like crazy, screaming and yelling and having a great time. And then at 42nd Street and the Knickerbocker Hotel, a window opened and Caruso sang from the windowsill over there, a song you would never sing. And it was not the Yanks are coming, the boys are coming. It was their boys. It was their song. And he sang it three times. The, the cars stopped, the horses stopped, everyone looked up. And Ellen Hayes said in that moment, they were gonna bring the city back, they were gonna bring the country back, and they were gonna bring beauty back. The third time he sang it, he was begged to sing it again. And he sang it so loud the third time that you could hear it 10 blocks away. It just reverberated, it was like a monster. And it just brought beauty into everyone and they decided that they were gonna live and they were gonna bring the arts back and flowers back and everything back that they hadn't had in all these years. So there was this happening and all of these reports from the war, all these men came back and Alexander Wolcott was the biggest one of all. The movie and the play, The Man Who, Who Came to Dinner was based on him. The Brandy Alexander was based on him. He was a very big man. And he took over the city and it wasn't the way people wanted it because he was really boastful. And every sentence he started with the words, when I was in the theater of war. And it just went on and on and it wasn't what anybody wanted. So they had to shut him down because he was the only voice anybody was listening to. So a great group of people lured him into the Algonquin restaurant for lunch under the guise of a great pastry chef had come from France. And Alex, Alex loved pastry. So he walked in and he walked to this table, the round table, and there was a roast and they roasted him to death. They said everything they could think of saying and he laughed so loud and so hard that at the end of this two and a half lunch, hour lunch, two and a half hours of his just being done in, he looked at everyone, he raised his glass and he said, please, 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 let's do this tomorrow. And that's how it all began. The humiliation backfired and it turned into a 10-year lunch. They, it was based on friendship, it was based on absolute reverence for every one of their gifts. And Alex Wolcott made that happen by being humbled, humbled by their great gifts. At They wanted to knock him down a notch or 20. And he said they knocked him down a notch or 30. 
So it was based on that sort of fun atmosphere. Dorothy Par Parker, Mrs. Mrs. Parker to everyone, she, the, the quips started coming immediately and they were put in the paper by, and the Vanity Fair became a magazine that everybody was reading. She got a job there. Asked one day, you know, that she heard that Calvin Coolidge was dead. And she said, how do people know? Alexander said, everything he likes is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. The whole city could not get enough of these people. She said, being an old maid is like death by drowning. Not an altogether unpleasant experience. It's a weird sensation once you cease to struggle. So it just went on and on and everybody was hanging on their words. The best, the best of the best is, Alex said, I like your bald head, Mark. It feels like you're, like my wife's behind. So he said, I like your, I like your bald head, Mark. It feels like my wife's behind. And Mark looks over at him and he goes, why, so it does, so it does. Just stuff like that, not not too mean, just kind of fun. Every day except Saturday or Sunday, they were there. They went to a lady's house who was making beautiful covers for magazines at five o'clock, and a lot of them went to the theater. They were inseparable. The, there were, this was a time of reading in New York and the time of theater, and it was all after the war. Everything just blossomed. There were 85 theaters on Times Square alone. There were 19 papers in New York City. And Alex, Alec Wilcott, the master of ceremonies, became a critic. And he also became a star finder. And he found Fred Astaire and his sister. He found the Marx Brothers. And he found Helen Hayes. And Harper became, Harpo became one of this group. And it's really funny because Groucho would never be involved in it. He said it was too... He said it was too vicious, but honestly, he wasn't sharp enough. So the silent Marx Brothers, Mark's brother, was the raconteur, which I think is just fascinating. He was with the group forever. So, and if somebody made a really great remark, maybe slightly pompous, but definitely clever, the whole group stood up and bowed to him. And then they had to make a clause where except for except for Alec, because we'd never get our lunch eaten. And our lunch their lunch was poor. This is the other thing. The man who ran the restaurant let these scoundrels in because the vanity fair didn't pay them anything, and all they could afford was eggs, and he'd throw in the celery stick every now and then. But after a while it became popular and everybody heard the Algonquin and the Algonquin got going, but it took a year. He fed these people practically for nothing and it paid off in the end. So the funny thing about this Wilcock guy is he was insufferable and everybody knew it. And he would say, if anybody else got to talk for more than a minute, he would say, oh my God, my leg has fallen asleep. Do you mind if I join it? It had to always be about him. And they constantly were com coming up with stories that were so unbelievable and so fascinating that he would allow two minutes of their time. It never happened. When this Wilcott, Mr. Wilcott Alexander was a child, he was asked by a teacher, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he looked at the teacher and he said, when I grow up, 
I want to be a fabulous monster. And that's exactly what he became. He ruled this. Dorothy was 26 when she got involved. She was a poet. She was, she did Vogue captions early on. She would do anything in two seconds. She was so brilliant. It took her two seconds to come up with whatever it was. One day they gave her lingerie and she said, brevity is the soul of lingerie, said the petticoat to the chemise. Two seconds after she was given the job, everybody wrote, they had, a, had to have a pencil and a piece of paper always by, by her because you had to write it down. One time somebody said to her, you haven't written in so long is because you're having fun with the Algonquins. And she said, no, somebody stole my pencil. Everybody was writing what she said. And then she wrote, of course, she did wear Coke bottle classes. Her maiden name was Rothschild, which she called Rothschild, which she wanted to get rid of. And that's why she married her first husband. She loved the last name Parker because nobody could tell what she was or who she was. It didn't work out that marriage, but she did have very thick glasses. And she did say, that men don't make passes at women who wear glasses. So she was right about that. And she required three things in every man she ever had, that he'd be handsome, ruthless, and stupid. And all the guys in this club were so upset because she constantly picked bums. There was no stopping her. And she tried to commit suicide five times. And everybody was keeping all the right information about how to do it correctly from her because they really wanted her to fail. She said I, that she always put all of her eggs in one bastard, right after the other. And these men could hardly stand her conversation because it would become very melancholy, but they would sit there and if the gin was, they asked for a straw, for a bottle of gin, each one of them, and they would give Dorothy 20 minutes to talk about her love life. That's how much they loved her. Robert Benchley, was also quite, quite the comedian in this group. And he had a complete, maybe love affair with Dorothy, we're not sure. So he, he was at Harvard his senior year and he was famous because he, because he failed the year because in his international, in his international law course where he was going to get a diploma because that's how, because you could do that back in 1920s, the big, thing that he had to work on for two months was international law for Newfoundland fishing rights. And he did it from the point of view of the fish. I mean, what a guy. So he was the president of chivalry in this group and he was best friends with Dorothy. He loved her so much. People would see them together and they'd say, are you two married? And Robert would say, no, because there already is a Mrs. Benchley. And they'd say, are you happy? How, how's your love life? And he said, well, our love life, let's just say we tried it twice and both times it worked. They had two children. They lived completely separate lives. So I don't know. They probably should have, well, they couldn't be a couple because he couldn't do that, but that's probably the man she should have been with. So vanity fair. Okay. She, she was fired. This is the big thing. This is what happened. She was fired for writing a, she got this job with Vanity Fair, a promotion to write 
theater reviews. She did a great job. Like she would say, you know, um, I only wish the, wish the, you know, stars had showed up this night. They, they telegraphed it in. She came up with all these expressions that people still use to this day. But she wrote a scathing, bad, bad, bad review for Billy Burke. She's the good witch in The Wizard of Oz and Topper's wife. But in this play, she was horrible. So Dorothy wrote a bad review. She unfortunately was married to Mr. Ziegfeld, the Mr. Flo Ziegfeld. Two seconds later, she's fired. The whole gang left Vanity Fair with her and they all got better jobs. But she never in her whole life thought that anybody would do anything with her or for her. And she was humbled to the point where she couldn't leave her house for two weeks. She went on a bender. Robert just kept putting bottles of gin through the, the letter mailbox, little slat, little thin bottles of gin wrapped in, in little towels, knowing exactly how difficult it was for her to accept that kind of love. That's how close they were. So upstairs, there was in one of the rooms, a poker game with all these men. And one of them lost his home. One of them lost his honeymoon money and Wilcott, they called him Father Christmas because he was the worst poker player. Father Christmas. That was the best. But he, he along with all these other guys and a few extras, started the New Yorker magazine which was a huge failure failure in the beginning and they had to put more money into it. And then it finally took off when they got James Thurber as the cartoonist and they brought him into the, to the meetings and the lunches and they paid for his lunch if they had to, because it was that great. So the thing was after that, they, they got rich because of the New Yorker, a little bit rich, rich enough to buy a really crummy Island in Vermont. It was, they called it a green beret. It didn't have any trees on it. It was just this, like, somebody called it a, it looked like mold, but they bought it. 10 of them got together and they bought it, including Harpo Marx. And they called it the pine clad kingdom. Nashabee is what they called it. It was on Lake Bomazine, which sounds so crazy. It's not bad. I was looking at, I was looking at it, but a lot of the girls were underwhelmed by how rustic it was. And a lot of other people were under, underwhelmed by the wardrobe, which was for Robert Benchley wearing underwear and having a constant bottle of gin in his hand. Harper Marks wore silk pajamas constantly. And no married couples were allowed on this island. If you had a wife or you had a husband, you had to leave him at home. And if you didn't, you had to sleep in this room that they called, it had a terrible bed that squeaked all night. You had to sleep in that room. That was your punishment. And the bed was called the informative double. So the next morning, everybody could just humiliate you. So it was just this place where it wasn't sexual. It was just where people let their hair down and they just did what they wanted. And they, they, ha they all had breakfast together. And then the whole day was up for grabs. The big thing was pe some people play badminton. That's not where it was at. The croquet game was 
because Wilcott was in charge and he was in charge of the world. It was killer croquet, bloodthirsty, vicious. It was no game for the soft. You damaged your contestant. Your opponents had to be crying at the end of the game. And Alexander Wilcott said his doctor said he couldn't play unless he won. So that became a big part of it. George Kaufman came, he showed up, and he became a bit a, a bit of it. He, they didn't think he was clever enough, but Edna Ferber, who he wrote with, was clever enough. So they let this little tag along come in. And George would tell him he'd, he'd write songs, he wasn't really into music, but and he'd ask for their advice. And one time he came up with a song, I'll Be Loving You Always. And he played it on the piano that was in, in the Vermont crazy house and the it was there for him this piano no one else played no one liked that sort of thing but when George came he always made them listen to his music so the song was called I'll be loving you always there was this big debate that developed afterwards it was it was so under, unrealistic everyone felt and he played it over and over I'll be loving you always I'll be loving you always and so finally, the team came up with, I'll be loving you Thursdays. And he went back. And of course, it was taken back to always. But they sang that song every time they got together, every evening when people were going to sleep. The song, I'll be loving you Thursdays, was their little nocturnal song that they sang in the woods. They sang when they were going to bed. It was their theme song. Noel Coward came and he was invited to the Algonquin, his first New York City visit. That's all he wanted to do, was get to this table the very first day. He was sort of jet-lagged. I think he came by boat, but he was jet-lagged, so he was way ahead of his time, let's face it. And he dressed up really beautifully. And he was he sat next to Edna, who had won a Pulitzer Prize. They thought that was beautiful and that was fair. He looked over, and Edna wore suits, and you know, whatever that was about. She wore amazing, beautiful suits, tailored, divine. You know, the little pocket watch, she had it all. Spats, everything. He looked at her and he goes, Why, Edna, you look like a man in that suit. And she looked at him and she said, Why, Noel, you look like a man in your suit. So that started, and he became a absolute member of the group although he only sat at the table six times. But he was welcome. He was the only person that was welcome back, no matter whatever they did in the world. He could murder somebody and he was still welcome back because he was so he was so clever, he would always be welcomed back. So they cordoned off the table because fans were watching, which really irritated everyone, but they, they soldiered through and they decided because this rich couple from Long Island became part of their group, this couple supported Picasso and gave money to um, Ernest Hemingway. They love the arts and they said, you have to come to Europe. So these, the whole table, instead of going to Vermont one summer, they went to Europe. And Wilcott sent this telegram back to um, the New Yorker magazine and it said, um, Venice, streets are filled with water, please advise. And they, they would send little little quips from all over where they where they were. And they had a great time. And Wilcott and um, Arpa Marx bought a beautiful villa that was 
Vermont upscale. So they could go to Vermont or they could go to this villa on the cap. I mean, it was overlooking the entire ocean. It was gorgeous. And everybody went back to Vermont. So it was still just the most amazing group. The time's coming to the end and the end was so interesting to me. It was Sacco and Vincetti, this horrible, horrible thing that happened. And it broke the table up because these two Italians were accused of a murder and it tapped into this big anti-immigrant um, feeling that was going across the country. The whole country was completely divided over this trial. I didn't know that. I read all about it in all different places. This was, this was right, it was just at this terrible time. And Benchley, who was Dorothy's best friend, called them guilty reds, communists, Italians. It was so cold. And Dorothy, she thought they were innocent. It was like mom and dad were fighting at the Algonquin table and it didn't stop. And everyone took sides and the whole nation was taking sides over this thing. It was horrific and it went on and on. She went and got her, and it was in Boston. She went and got herself arrested and it was for protesting and sauntering. And she spoke in all the papers and she said, okay, I do saunter well, but there was no, there was no joke about this. There was no fun about this. Herman Mankiewicz was there at the Algonquin towards the end. He showed up right at this particular time. This depression, everything's going horribly wrong. And he invites all of them to come to Hollywood and it breaks up the table. Dorothy went, you know, Benchley started a radio program. Everybody just left and the table was deserted. Dorothy said it was like the Klondike rush for gold going out to Hollywood. And the table was gone. As quick as it started, it was as quick as it ended. And it was over a political divide that they just could not get over. At the very end, Dorothy wrote this one last piece for the for the New Yorker, and it was the flaw in pagan of paganism, the flaw of paganism. Drink and dance and lie. Love, love, the reeling midnight though. Love the reeling midnight though. For tomorrow we shall die. But alas, we never do. So it's drink and dance and lie. Love. Love the reeling midnight though. Love it. For tomorrow we shall die. But alas, we never do. Edna Ferber went back a year later and sat at the table alone. And next to her was this family from Cleveland getting very excited about the play they're going to see that night. That was the end. And it never, ever, ever was filled again. So, Sacco and Vincetti, who would have guessed? Everybody just couldn't handle it and they fled. And it was gone. So, I just, I just wish something like that would come back. Some wonderful place where people are having fun and we could hear about it. So... Anyway, just wanted you to hear about the, the lunch that lasted 10 years. I will be back 
and try to stay sane. That one made me sane for a while and then I got sad, so I don't know if that's worth it. But it's a good story and it's a true story. And I will be back. Thanks. Bye-bye.